Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Alex Zerden, founder of Capital Peak Strategies, a fintech, digital asset, and emerging technologies advisory firm, drawing on 15 years of public and private sector experience, including a stint with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and as Treasury Attaché at the Embassy in Kabul, Alex talks about the current humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and the renewed threat to global security that the return to power of the Taliban represents. I hope you find the podcast informative and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Alex, welcome. Karen, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. So, Alex, let's get just right into this. I think because of the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, the return of the Taliban, there's a lot of focus there on Afghanistan now in this country. Tell me a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned. You were Treasury Attaché. What are some of the lessons that you learned there? Yeah, so it's really hard to watch what's been going on TV and and in the news. Many, many who've been there, you know, this is really disheartening to see. And also, Those who have worked in the Afghan government have worked with U.S. forces. It's really a tragic situation. And those that are still in Afghanistan, I mean, the country is facing a grave humanitarian crisis, even as we speak. And it's only getting worse because of the decisions of the Taliban. So I I wanted to make sure that we all understand this is a live crisis. And for those in the compliance community, those who are working on AML CFT issues, that the crisis hasn't gone away, even as the media attention has diminished a bit. So the lessons learned this 20-year endeavor of the U.S. government, U.S. military, U.S. diplomatic and development assistance. The top line figure we've seen is about $145 billion over 20 years for development assistance. That runs to about $7.5 billion a year, or 40% of the current GDP of Afghanistan, at least as of August. There were gains made. So where did the money go? I mean, these were budgets that were supported over 20 years by both Democratic and Republican Congress and Senate as well as presidential administration. So there's this bipartisan support for injecting this money into Afghanistan. I think the major takeaway is that it was too much money. Afghanistan did not have the absorptive capacity, didn't have the ability to appropriately, effectively, efficiently absorb that money into its economy. And so it had very distortive effects over the 20-year period. You see anecdotally doctors stopped practicing medicine and started being drivers and interpreters because there was better money to be made working for an NGO or the U.S. government rather than practicing medicine. Tell me, what do we learn about corruption and kleptocracy from Afghanistan? It was seminal to what I saw on the ground in Afghanistan as the U.S. government were working every day on counter-corruption issues, some days more effectively than other days. There really were structural problems, and I think this has been pretty well documented. I guess the question of do policymakers Did they listen? Did they read it? Did they care? Or were there other drivers for U.S. involvement in Afghanistan? And was this just another calculation about the different trade-offs to be made? And I think that was in tension with the counterterrorism mission, maintaining U.S. presence there to affect other outcomes to go against terrorist groups to try to further U.S. national security and foreign policy goals. But I think on the corruption point, I mean, I think where we are here in 2021 is that corruption cannot be ignored as a national security and foreign policy issue. And I think that's really powerful. And that's having to learn from the mistakes made in 20 years in Afghanistan. But it doesn't just extend to Afghanistan. It's Iraq. 
it's the crisis in Ukraine that's been roiling for almost a decade now and beyond. It is a really acceptance that economic steps taken by the U.S. government, by allies, by the private sector can have foreign policy and national security implications. And I think the Biden administration and the Biden campaign took this issue very seriously, definitely discussing this and elevating the issue. But I think there also is a bipartisan consensus on anti-corruption efforts. And that was seen through the passage of the Corporate Transparency Act to create a beneficial ownership uh, registry in the United States through the broader Anti-Money Laundering Act. And although this does feel like a million years ago, that bill was passed at the end of 2020, overriding President Trump's veto by a bipartisan Senate and Congress. So I wonder if before we move on, you could give me an example of some way in which we were able to stem some of the corruption and make sure that the money going into Afghanistan went into the right place, and maybe some way in which you feel like we failed, if there's some specific examples. Yeah. So at the structural level, I think the creation of SIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, is a bright spot. This is a congressionally mandated body that provided broad ranging oversight across multiple U.S. government agencies, Defense Department, State Department, USAID, and Treasury and other agencies. So it had a wide ranging jurisdiction and it provided a level of accountability. They were cataloging the corruption as it was going, trying to be proactive to prevent additional corruption. But that really represented a evolved thinking within the U.S. government of how it wants to more holistically address corruption risks and waste, fraud, and abuse risks of U.S. taxpayer money. I would say the other part, too, is cooperation with NATO partners and international donors to actually address the corruption risks as well. And that was through the creation of the uh, ARTF, or the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund, which was a World Bank-managed platform to responsibly deploy money donor assistance money from the U.S. as well as a number of other donors around the world into Afghanistan to help on development assistance, recognizing that there were heightened corruption risks in Afghanistan and to attempt to mitigate those risks. So those are two important structural changes that I hope can be best practices moving forward when the next large-scale crisis, unfortunately, will probably occur. And then I think in terms of the corruption, the negatives, I mean, that's been adequately cataloged, I think, by organizations like SIGAR. In terms of what I encountered day to day in Afghanistan, I had full confidence in a number of my interlocutors within the Afghan government. I had the privilege of working with a number of Afghan officials who had no indications of being corrupt, who were very patriotic in their desire to see Afghanistan be a more democratic, be a more pluralistic, be a more rule of law driven country. And that's what really helped me get through some of my hardest days in Afghanistan was seeing the work and the sacrifices made by some of my Afghan counterparts. How great is the crisis Afghanistan now faces? I mean, what are you hearing? Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, so Afghanistan was in a crisis before this crisis began. So there were recurring droughts that led to food insecurity. About 18 million Afghans, or almost half the population of 40 million, suffered from food insecurity in August. So before the crisis kicked off. Um, you have internally displaced persons. You have structural unemployment, reportedly in the 20s and 30s percent. So people were just not working. And that was, again, before the U.S. and international partners suspended aid, which represented about 40 percent of GDP and 75 percent of government expenditures and assistance to the Afghan people. That was before the U.S. froze you know, roughly $9 billion in foreign exchange reserves that were parked outside of Afghanistan, the rainy day fund for the Afghan people. And then also the U.S. government, again, all according to public reports, suspended 
U.S. dollar shipments into the country. The country is heavily dollarized and heavily dependent on U.S. physical banknotes for a lot of economic activity. So the economic indicators are very grave. We're seeing the effects now that this lack of liquidity, the lack of money, the lack of assistance is having. But we also have to remember how we got here. The Taliban walked away from peace negotiations. They negotiated in bad faith. They made battlefield gains. And they terrorized and intimidated the Afghan government and civil society to then take over without really recognizing or understanding or anticipating the consequences of their actions. And so that is the situation we are in today. And so I think it really is incumbent upon the Taliban to change their behavior, to make major structural reforms to their way of governing, to their practice. And I haven't seen it. They put in a member, the leader of the Haqqani Network, as the interior ministry, who's wanted by the FBI and has a bounty on his head. That is a huge slap in the face of the international community. They put in a Taliban loyalist to head the central bank. That is a huge step backwards. Someone who has no known economic or financial training to run their central bank, which also controls their financial intelligence unit. Obviously, the Taliban is in power, though, and people are hungry, they're starving. What's the course that the U.S. and the international community needs to follow to get humanitarian aid to the people of Afghanistan? The U.S. has taken really important steps, for instance, by issuing a general license for humanitarian assistance. Uh, the sanctions program in place is a counterterrorism program against the Taliban. And so there are no initial or facial carve-outs for humanitarian assistance because they are counterterrorism sanctions in the first instance. And so it's a really live question as well about what the U.S. government's going to do about the $9 billion in foreign exchange, how the U.S. government may deploy the foreign assistance that was already appropriated for Afghanistan, not under the Taliban, and what the disposition of those funds are as well. And so I think there are major policy decisions ahead. This crisis isn't going away, again, even after the crisis fades from the news. So that does lead to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Daesh. What are the terrorism threats that you're talking about now that uh, this all started because of the terror threat and we're back to these groups being able to operate in Afghanistan? What's the prognosis on what does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's a really sad situation right now. I really do feel that the past is, is prelude. Um, the U.S. You know, supported the Mujahideen in the 1980s against the Taliban. And then once Afghanistan descended in the Civil War and the Soviets left, we reduced our support, our international assistance, aid, and development work. And then that led to the takeover by the Taliban, who then provided safe harbor to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden to plot the 9-11 terror attacks. And there's a direct through line there to see that evolution. I'm concerned we're going to lose attention and momentum on Afghanistan today. The Taliban is now in control. By my own research, I've identified at least 17 terrorist organizations that are operating in Afghanistan today. Um, they're ideologically very diverse, as you mentioned. There's Al-Qaeda, there's ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan. There's also Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force. Um, there's also anti-Indian groups such as Lashkar-e-Taiba, uh, which is supported by the Pakistanis. And there are a number of other terrorist groups that are there, again, uh, very diverse in their ideological orientation, but are all using the instability and the safe haven, the protection afforded by the Taliban to train, to equip, to raise funds, to engage in both territorial and extraterritorial attacks. And we saw ISIS-K, which again is an avowed enemy of the Taliban. I don't want to diminish that. Um, But they were likely responsible for a suicide bombing outside of a mosque in Kunduz uh, just last week. And so the activity is likely going to harm and kill Afghans as it's done over the past 20 and, and really 40 years. They're going to be the primary recipients of this violence. But there's a regional dimension 
There is the Pakistani Taliban, which has committed terrorist attacks against Pakistani targets, as well as potentially Chinese targets in Pakistan. And then there's the international dimension. And that's what you know, really does scare me as well about you know, ISIS-K and other groups do have global aspirations to harm U.S. interests, European interests, other international interests that go beyond the region. And so the Taliban doesn't seem particularly willing or particularly able to address these threats among their allies, such as al-Qaeda. I guess the question from a financial intelligence perspective is, what can the U.S. do? You know, I've called for the creation of a, the Treasury attache, my position that I had when I was in Afghanistan, to do that remotely from a major financial hub that accesses Afghanistan, such as Dubai, Qatar, potentially Istanbul, just to have that capability to maintain a visible presence on the economic activities going on in Afghanistan. Um, you can also see that from Islamabad, from Delhi, from other regional hubs. But it's going to be really hard. And I think there is a grave concern about going dark, about losing that financial intelligence capability, particularly because, again, the Taliban is in control of the financial intelligence unit, which has been cut off from the Egmont group. Where do you see other emerging threats for both terror and financial crime? Yeah, so on the terrorism question, we can't take our eyes off of Afghanistan, but also need to maintain vigilance on other priorities. I mean, I think the domestic terrorism occurring inside the United States and outside the United States is a major threat. And I think the financial crimes compliance community is doing incredible work to adapt to this emerging threat, but again, needs to remain vigilant and see how these groups continue to evolve in their tradecraft, in their financial facilitation efforts, fundraising efforts, and distribution of funds. That is really concerning. Um, I was a congressional staffer on January 6th, and what happened that day is truly horrific. And I think we collectively need to ensure that that can't happen again and that we take all appropriate legal measures to address the domestic terrorism threat facing the United States right now. And that's disconcerting as someone who's spent my career going after foreign terrorist organizations and going after foreign financial facilitators, that we have to make sure that domestically we have all these challenges at home. And I think that also dovetails into the financial crime question as well. I mean, we're seeing from the Pandora's Papers as well that the U.S. is a jurisdiction, a lot of foreign kleptocrats, a lot of malign actors are parking their funds. And it's nothing new. It's nothing revelatory. But I think we need to harden our defenses. We need to address vulnerabilities in our jurisdiction and really move forward to improve the financial integrity of the United States to be a credible voice internationally to address these national security and foreign policy threats. But I think we are focusing very much on domestic issues right now, which again, I was, I was surprised I would be talking with you in 2021 on a financial crimes podcast about these core domestic issues. But that really is the game right now, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm saddened by that. But also, we're in the best place to affect that as, as US-based practitioners and professionals. And so we have to be part of the solution here. And it can't just provide policy recommendations to foreign counterparts, but really have to internalize this and do the hard work of this democratic participatory process that I was just talking about. Well, you're starting to go to my last question. Um, we are about out of time. What gives you hope at this point? What are you seeing that's hopeful out there? You've talked about people coming together on regulating crypto and some of the fintech. What else gives you hope out there right now? I think at the personal level, I am encouraged by the creation of this community, uh, of this compliance community of professionals across the country and across the world that just didn't exist 20 years ago, um, that we have made compliance, made abiding by the law a central part of business and a, a central part of supporting you know, broader national security and foreign policy efforts, broader economic prosperity efforts. Like It is done through a commitment to the rule of law. It is done through a commitment to 
supporting these broader values and, and implementing that in a very difficult way within organizations that may not be receptive to it, getting up every day to fight those battles and to really engage in a way to improve the financial system in important and collective and meaningful ways that are really hard. And so I, I'm just really encouraged by the dedication of financial crimes professionals, compliance professionals, um, those within government and law enforcement that are supporting that. And I think this deputization of the private sector in this post 9-11 architecture under the USA Patriot Act, now enhanced under the Anti-Money Laundering Act, really shows the gravity of effort is done in the private sector here. And that's a sea change that the private sector has this public-private commitment. Um, and again, not just in rhetoric, and that, that phrase gets bandied about a lot, but really is meaningfully engaged every single day in supporting these broader public policy goals. And I find that really encouraging now that there is the, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people every day who are working on this issue set inside and outside of government. It gives me a lot of faith of how we can improve as a broader group and how there is now a constituency on that, that, that can participate in government, that can participate in democratic processes, that can be a voice for doing the right thing within their organizations, both in government, but also in the private sector, for-profit and not-for-profit spaces. And I'm just really encouraged by that. Alex Erden, founder and principal of Capital Peak Strategies, LLC. Thanks. Thank you so much, Karen. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Alex Erden of Capital Peak Strategies. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you will receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.